0: Get ready for a thrilling episode as we take you to Berlin for the Schnippel Disco, also known as the Disco Soup. Hosted by the Slow Food Youth Network, this event rescues food from going to waste and turns it into delicious soups and meals. I'm Valentina Gritti, I'm your host and the Global Community and Project Manager of the Slow Food Youth Network. Join me as we chat with special guests at the party and learn how the food collected will be served the next day at the Via Habanés Sat Demonstration, a call for more sustainable agriculture. Today we will also talk about sustainable food policies, from the international negotiations to the grassroots level. Let's get chopping! Locale.
1: Local. Locale.
0: Shock Locale. Cambiamento.
2: Food.
1: Change.
0: News Network Podcast Welcome to the parts of the year. We are at the Schnippel Disco, the disco soup at the trendy Festsaal Kreuzberg in Berlin. Can you hear that beat? DJs are spinning tunes and volunteers are chopping up rescued veggies at long tables. It's a scene like no other. Uh, I have a problem with a very big beetroot that apparently doesn't open up.
2: The knives are not uh, long (laughs) enough.
1: I can't divide it. It's huge. I think I'm cutting onions because I have something white on. So
0: So no beetroots for you? No.
1: (laughs) But
0: you're gonna cry.
3: Yes, I am.
0: In the next room there is a big stage where different speakers are giving talks related to sustainable agriculture and fair agricultural policies and now it's our turn so follow me on stage as i interview four international guests we'll hear from tyler short coordinator of the youth constituency for la via campesina at the civil society and indigenous peoples mechanism for relations with the united nations committee on world food security he's also a farmer in kentucky and board member of family farm defenders The second guest will be Edward Mukibi, President of Slow Food International and Executive Director of Slow Food Uganda, followed by Chengeto Sandra Munzira, a young farmer and activist fighting for small farmer rights in Zimbabwe. And finally, Adel Garrett, an Agroecology Master's student and activist for the Berlin Slow Food Youth Network. Together, we'll discuss the impact of food policies on our local and global food systems and how European policies affect the global south. I'm going to start my interview asking the same question to all our guests. Good food for everyone. What does this mean to you? Tyler Short.
2: Well, to me, good food to everybody means that we collectively must continue the political, economic, and social struggle to realize the basic human right to food for all. The right to food is universal and inherent to all of us. Human rights, by nature of being human, um, belong to everybody. They are indivisible. This means that the right to food cannot be separated from other human rights. So all human rights are interdependent.
0: Edward Mukibi.
1: For me, good food for everybody means uh, everyone should have access to food and should be able to afford good food. Food that is good for the planet, good for their health, good for their nutritional and dietary requirements, but also food that respects human dignity.
0: uh, Good
4: food to everybody. To me, it means uh, food that is easily accessible to all. It means food that is uh, culturally and traditionally appropriate. Uh, Food that uh, feeds within communities, food that is not foreign, food that uh, people of that community
3: really consider to be their own food and their own taste.
0: Adele Garrett.
3: I've been working the past uh, few months in the dairy and I've decided to um, narrow down the question a bit and talk about what good cheese is to me. Um, I think that's. Um, quite straightforward. It's uh, good and fair milk for the animals, the farmers, but also the people working on the farm. Um, it's a safe and clean process, an artisan know-how, and a ripening process that is uh, made with, with love. And I have not forgotten the, the second part of the question, which is to everybody. And um, those standards are also the standards that I, that I wish for everybody to have. Um, we are talking cheese here, so um, I would say, of course, in a small proportion, so that we can um, yeah, still, so that every can, everybody can, can get a piece if they want, um, and um, also that we can still afford it in a few decades.
0: Now, let's listen to our guests one by one to get a better understanding of their knowledge on food policies. Let's start with Tyler Short and ask him how he combines his two roles youth coordinator and international negotiations on the one hand, and being a young farmer himself on the other.
2: Yeah, I I think a lot about this question whenever I'm in the fields. I listen to music, I listen to the birds, and I think about the political struggle that we're engaged in. Um, I'm on the board of a national level organization called Family Farm Defenders. We are a member of a national organization in the United States called the National Family Farm Coalition, And Family Farm Defenders is a member of the international peasant movement, La Via Campesina, which founded 30 years ago. Um, So I'm one of the coordination committee members representing La Via Campesina in the Civil Society and Indigenous Peoples Mechanism for relations with the UN Committee on World Food Security. The CSIPM is an official participant of this United Nations Committee. The Civil Society and Indigenous Peoples Mechanism is the largest international space for civil society organizations and social movements working toward the eradication of poverty and food insecurity. Uh, My main responsibilities are to coordinate the youth of the CSIPM, and I'm also involved in the advisory group of the mechanism, and we inform the governance processes of this United Nations Committee. Um, So, I find connections through my global policy work, my national work, and my grassroots work, um, and I'll just name a few. Um, So, it's really important that as small-scale food producers, we recognize that we share similar problems in the United States to those of you all in Germany and other countries around the world, not just in the global north, but also in the global south. So, these same problems, we're also trying to present similar solutions. Many of these problems are tied to access to and control over land and other productive resources. We also share problems such as access to and control over markets. Another problem is sexism and gender-based discrimination and gender-based violence, as well as the capture of governance processes by corporations. Some of the main solutions that we're all advocating for around the world include as I noted, comprehensive and genuine agrarian reform. We are trying to develop direct market relationships between producers and consumers, especially at the local level and the territorial levels through community supported agriculture and farmers' markets and very fun events like this disco soup. Um, we're fighting for popular peasant feminism and inclusive processes to make sure that. Um, Sexual and gender diversities are also part of this movement to fight patriarchy. Um, And so personally on the farm that I work, I have direct land access. I can grow my own food. I do not have to pay rent. I love growing corn to make tortillas. I grow beans and chili peppers, squash, garlic, and onions. All of this is for storage and for my own household consumption.
0: And Tyler, I would like to ask you also if you could explain us how these negotiations work and also how can you make your voice be heard within these
2: negotiations? All right, so the United Nations Committee on World Food Security, um, it's governed by member states. They make all of the decisions. And so as social movements, civil society organizations, we are participating in the decisions that are already made for us. So we have to struggle to influence these political processes. I'm gonna outline the general, just generally, how a policy process works in this United Nations Committee. First, it starts by governments deciding on a multi-year program of work. This has the fun acronym of MYPOW. Um, So the work streams that are decided, there are two main results. One is policy recommendations, which is more of a short document that just outlines various themes for governments to address in their national policies. Another set of policy document is called voluntary guidelines. These are generally much longer, much more in-depth. So after member states decide on the main themes that are gonna be involved in this multi-year program of work, um, the member states then decide on the actual technical work plan with all of the dates and all of the activities. Then the work streams, they are activated by the production of a report by what's called the high-level panel of experts. This has the acronym HLPE. So the HLPE of the Committee on World Food Security facilitates the policy debates of the, of the committee. And so the HLPE provides independent, comprehensive, and evidence-based analysis. And these reports are elaborated through a scientific and transparent, very inclusive process. So the HLPE, they, they open up a consultation asking everybody to submit through the website. Anyone in this room could submit your ideas on what a report should include. So in terms of a policy process on youth, if you're very interested in the production of healthy food without pesticides, you can put that input in there. If you're really interested in fighting patriarchy, you have the opportunity to make sure your voice is heard. Various drafts of this report are produced And along the way, you can still provide your input. Eventually, um, a group called the Open-Ended Working Group is developed. And this is where we as social movements really have the opportunity to shape the policy processes. Um, Thematic discussions will take place so we can talk about human rights. We can talk about food sovereignty and other main themes that are really relevant to our movement. Ultimately, a draft for negotiations is presented to this open-ended working group. And then, in the headquarters of the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization in Rome, we meet and we directly negotiate the text, line by line, word by word, the text of these policy documents.
0: Tyleros explains that we can all, as individuals, give our input in these negotiations by visiting the UN Committee on World Food Security website. Here there are links directing you to the high-level panel of experts, HLPE, consultations. While once the negotiations actually start, you can only contribute as an organization and not as an individual. So with Tyler we have talked about how international negotiations work and in particular the CSIPM. Now i'm going to ask Elvar mulkibi president of slow food international how european policies impact food supply chains in the global south especially regarding fairness working conditions and safety for farmers
1: this this question is heavy on policy but i'll try to break it down in very simple terms i have i've been studying uh, uh, food policy for quite long especially the north south uh, relations because uh, Many of the policies uh, taken and uh, uh, formulated and implemented here in Europe, they greatly influence the global south governments. Many of the governments are looking at what is Europe doing that we can do. If it comes to deregulating GMOs uh, in Europe, many countries in the global south first want to see what Europe is doing, then they can also fall suit of that so this is how, one of the ways how these policies are rated. But I, I will also uh, talk directly about the shift. You know, many times uh, uh, we have this colonial relationship between global south and the global north, 500, 600 years ago, the new world, the old world relationship. These relationships, the political relationships are very old. But also, um, in, in, for so many years, uh, the mm, policies in the global north have been blamed for the massive dumping of European products on the African continent, on the Latin American continent, also in Asia, Southeast Asia. You find uh, so many American products in the Philippines. You find so many uh, sp- uh, Spanish products in the Philippines, so many French products in West Africa, very cheap. That actually uh, disorganizes the... and. Uh, undermines the food sovereignty efforts of the governments because many producers cannot cope up with the highly subsidized products uh, from the trade agreements. And uh, uh, the European Union has created a free trade area in Africa uh, where uh, um, uh, we call it the CPA uh, on the African continent where there are treaties that have been signed But for so long, we have made a lot of noise on these policies and how they're undermining the food sovereignty uh, 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 efforts and how they're undermining the efforts of we smallholder farmers in Africa as we are trying to feed our communities. But now there is a big shift from just trading, uh, like exporting European uh, uh, products to Africa and just importing African products to Europe. There is a big shift Uh, in the European uh, policies from export policies to investment policies and this is a new trend Uh, since 2018 uh, Europe is the biggest uh, direct foreign investor in Africa with over 200 billion euros invested on the African continent directly as foreign direct investments and most of these investments uh, are negotiated uh, between the European Union and the African Union. And uh, when you look through and you scrutinize most of these uh, inv- uh, investment policies and uh, treaties, like the income agreement between the Europe and the African Union, you realize that most of these, uh, the, the biggest demand and the, the, the most of the focus of these investment policies are on protection of European investors on the African land. Like, protecting them the interests of European investors, protecting them in terms of security, in terms of their property, in terms of their interests, in terms of giving them a conducive environment to invest. But nothing, uh, most of them do do not actually talk about the ecological and economic obligations of the European investments to the African people. The European Union has also signed a a treaties with uh, 15 uh, Caribbean countries and these treaties, uh, the the investment treaty uh, spells out the ecological and social considerations to these countries, but these social and ecological considerations are actually missing uh, in the African treaties, in the uh, the African agreements. What does it mean? These investments are mostly in the agri-food industry, Uh, the the foreign direct European investments in Africa, they are mostly in the extraction industry and also in the service sector. When it comes to the agri-food industry, there is a massive flow of European seeds from the European countries to the African continent. This undermines the work of the communities to preserve seeds, to preserve biodiversity, because there is open advertisement how European seeds are superior than the African seeds and why we should support the uh, uh, African farmers should buy from the European investments. This also has a direct impact also on the access to land, access to the resources. We have seen a lot of uh, increase in land grabbing cases because the African governments, most of them are only focusing on protecting the interests of the investors, their economic interests and their political interests. And nothing is uh, uh, considered when it comes to ensuring the social uh, well-being of the communities where these investments are uh, being put. So it's really a complex situation, but it's, uh, uh, there is still a chance to reconsider some of these considerations in the treaties and also to renegotiate uh, 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 fair investment policies that focus not only on pushing for direct European investments in Africa, but also European Union to invest in the local and regional investments that are run by the local people and also mostly in the ecological and the social uh, uh, well-being of the African communities. And this is how we can have uh, a good investment relationship between Europe and, uh, and the global South.
0: Eddie also explains that if you look at the statistics, there has been an increase in export from Africa to Europe. More clarity needs to be made in order to figure out if these products are the same ones that are cultivated by Europeans on African land.
1: This also can be well done by the European citizens to uh, demand for accountability on the European investments on the African continent. Because most of these investments are using public money. So and. Uh, they need to be accountable, we need to have strong due diligence uh, on how these operations work. Yes, we may record uh, um, uh, Africa increasing its exports to Europe and increasing earnings from the export, uh, the the big European market, but in the end, this could be the same way of repatriating profits from the African resources back to Europe. So we need this kind of uh, uh, scrutiny in the in the agreements and the deals and the and, and, and uh, uh, the trade and the investment agreements which are which are being done. That's why it would make a, lo- uh, a lot of sense to push for uh, the European Union to support the local and regional investments within Africa than pushing so much for the foreign direct investments.
0: And, um, and Daddy, I have another question. So from your perspective as President of uh, Slow Food International, what can a movement like Slow Food do to influence policies?
1: Influencing policies is uh, now part of uh, our uh, strategic uh, direction as Slow Food. Um, Slow Food International is guided by three pillars in our call to action. One is the preservation of biological and cultural diversity. Another one is education and uh, inspiring people, the public, to uh, understand deeply the topic of food beyond what we eat, but also looking at the many meanings of food and our collective responsibility to change the food system, but also the third one and also very, very important uh, uh, pillar in our call to action is to influence policies. So Slow Food uh, as a global grassroots movement. uh, We are looking at influencing policies, but also with action from the grassroots level we are talking about we are talking to policymakers at different levels at the eu level at the national level like in uganda even today we filed a court case against the uh, kenyan government and uh, and the east african governments in the east african court of justice against deregulating gmos and allowing uh, uh, free cultivation of gmos in east africa So this is part of our national uh, advocacy, but this advocacy, this uh, uh, work to influence influence policies is informed by practical action of the activists, of the communities, by the evidence which we have in many, many communities in many parts of the world, and the the action which these communities are taking as the evidence how the food system should be.
0: Thank you, Eddie. I also have one last, maybe a bit more tricky question (laughs) for you which is about these um, uh, international negotiations and in particular actually would like to ask you about the last COP, the COP27 which was really focusing on uh, climate change mitigation and my question is do you think there is actually a practical outcome from this and especially in the global south? Like, have you seen any effect, or do you expect any effect from these negotiations? Uh,
1: like, like, like you said, this is a very tricky question, and uh, uh, we were lucky that the COP happened in Africa. And uh, I followed uh, every discussion in Egypt, and uh, what I can say is that yes, it's good to have uh, international negotiations, but uh, in many cases. Personally, and also uh, from my experience, I believe that uh, most of these negotiations, they end up lose meaning, especially if they take so long and nothing tangible comes out uh, immediately. After a negotiation, uh, like in COP, it takes a lot of effort to uh, follow up on these negotiations. It takes a lot of energy. and. Uh, uh, As we are trying to follow up on these negotiations, the people who are actually polluting and destroying uh, 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 the planet, they continue with their work. And they actually use the resources, the power, the the influence they have to set a round table for the negotiations. In these negotiations, we should always fight for what I call real solutions, not the greenwashing solutions, not the false f- solutions like what we saw in the, in the COP. Nothing uh, tangible actually has been reached uh, since the COP and I don't expect much will happen. But one thing which uh, I agree with uh, other African civil society organizations, our, our stand was to push for agroecology as a mitigation uh, to climate change. We are not negotiating with anyone on this. We are going to push for agroecology and we are going to use all the resources, all the uh, creativity, all the energy we have on the African continent to put for the mitigation of climate change. As the governments are trying to negotiate uh, for money that they can, nev- they will never account for, we shall uh, work with the communities to create lasting solutions to climate change. And we should push for agroecology to be uh, uh, in the national policies, even if we were not in the negotiation table, but at least we now can sit on the negotiation table with our governments and the ministries to push for uh, real solutions to climate change.
0: Let's hit pause for a second and see what's cooking at the disco soup. Very tasty. Yeah, yeah very good.
3: <laughs> Which soup is it? Which one? Um, I think like red bead and pumpkin, and lots of other vegetables, so, like, very earthy,
0: so, yeah. <laughs> okay. Guten Appetit. Danke. <laughs> and now, back to our next guest, Chengeto Muzira, young agroecological farmer from Zimbabwe, and let's ask her how she defines agroecology and what she means with climate justice.
4: Okay, so, agroecology for us is a holistic way of life. Uh, It is a holistic way of production of food that is not harmful to either the people, the environment, or nature as well. Um, Agroecology involves uh, whole communities. It involves creating interactions, connections, and relationships with the nature. We, as people, are in a way uh, in in relation and connection to nature. We we rely on the nature for food. We rely on the environment for medicines. We rely on uh, the environment for our cultural and traditional practices. So uh, that connection between the nature and environment is what we call agroecology. That care that nature has us and that we also reciprocate and give back to the to the nature is what we call agroecology. Climate justice really builds the same and it tries by all means to create and uh, destruct inequalities between uh, communities if I may say. So with climate justice we are really advocating for building solidarity between communities because we carry each other's burdens, building solidarity within communities because we've seen that climate change really affects women more. Women are the ones who have to work more in the field. Women are the ones who have to take care of the family. So the real impacts of climate change are more on women. So with climate justice, we, we are saying that women are not the only ones who have to bear this burden. We have to share this burden within communities and find proper solutions to it. With climate justice also, we are saying that there has to be that paying of the damage that has been caused with uh, uh, the corporates, with people in the extractive industry. They really have to because what they are doing is at the expense of our people and our rights. And um, you said that women
0: are the most affected by climate change. Is it because there are mainly uh, women in farming?
4: Yes, I believe uh, that uh, women are the most uh, people that work in the farms, women and children, what we call family farming. So usually you find that uh, women are the ones in the fields with their children most of the times. Women are the ones who have to walk for long distances to fetch water. Like uh, if we look at our cultural and our traditional dynamics, obviously women are the ones who need to look after the family. So all these impacts are on them. And women are the seed custodians, the indigenous seed custodians. So if their harvest is not well, then they uh, they lose on their seeds. It's still their burden to be able to um, know how best they can... Uh, make the best out of the next season that they are coming from. So, women have this, uh, like, it's inborn the responsibilities that women have within a family and within a community and a society. Mm. Super important role. And, uh, Chingeto, I have one last
0: question for you, which is something that I think most of us really want to hear.
4: Do you think agroecology can actually feed the world? <laughs> Yes, uh, I believe agroecology can feed the world. Uh, The most uh, important uh, thing to note is that agroecology is growing food for people and not for profit. So we we advocate for food sovereignty starting at household level, going to the community, national, and then the outside world. So, if we put into practice agroecology and climate justice, we are talking about using our own indigenous seeds. These are diverse. They've got so much nutritional values. So, if at a homestead we have all that diversity, it means that we are living a healthy life. We might then grow into Uh, selling surplus to get money for other things that we need to do. But firstly and foremost, our stomachs will be full. So I believe, yes, that agroecology feeds the world. And agroecology also has basic concepts on uh, low input costs because I'm using farm-saved seed. I don't need money to go and buy seed. We are doing family farming. So it's me and my family working in the fields. We are using our naturally available resources. We are using our compost. We are using our organic matter that is found within the environment. So I have low costs in the production that I'm doing. Agroecology is also based on the idea of local markets. And uh, with the COVID pandemic, we realized that communities really need to be, um, the food systems within communities need to be independent. We couldn't travel to get food from another district or from um, another place. We were supposed to find our own means within ourselves. So this really showed us that within a community, food systems must be strong. Within a community, agroecology is really important because we are saying that everything is within us. So, yes, um, agroecology really feeds the world.
0: Finally, let's listen to Adele Garrett, member of the Slow Food Youth Network steering committee. How can a youth movement like the Slow Food Youth Network have an impact on policies? And how important is the network for that?
3: Yeah. Um, So yes, definitely, I do believe that uh, we can have an impact on policies and and what's also amazing about the word international is that it happens happens in many places at the same time. Um, um, I I also am happy to give an example of um, maybe the successful work of the Slow Food Use Network in 2021. Um, we started a campaign with uh, Slow Food Germany also, so not only the youth movement, but also the, the, the Slow Food Germany, uh, which was called uh, Zukunft Wurzen. If you translate it into English, this would be uh, spice of the future. Um, and that, um, that was a campaign in which we had um, seven claims for the government. Um, And and we worked a few months, we organized a lot of um, events around that campaign um, and made sure that our voice were heard. and at the end, it's always difficult, I think, to measure the the, the success of, of such a campaign. But the fact is that now, uh, with the work also from many other organisations um, in, in in Germany, um, that that the topic uh, the topic food system is is much more present in the newly um, elected uh, government. And um, yeah, I think um, I think that's that's a great. Um, that's a, a great result to see that um, events we organize and, and things um, we push can also um, yeah end up actually in the in the politic and and to the the question of of how the um, how important the network is I think without the network such a um, such a um, success could could not happen um, I think it's um, it's. The, the concept is is, is very simple, um, but um, yeah, the more we are, uh, the better connected we are, the more powerful the actions also will be. Um, and also, I think it's very important as as European when we claim something for our food system, when we when we want something, to be aware that this might have an impact somewhere else in in, so, in the world. And um, and yeah, in, in order to, to be aware of that, we must be connected. We must learn from each other, from, from, from all these other persons in the Slow Food Youth International Network.
0: And uh, Adel, on a local level, like here in, in Berlin, have you seen that your activities as um, a young activist has actually an impact on the local community? Um,
3: yes, that's less new to me, the, the being active in Berlin, so I'm also happy to, to talk about that. I think we've achieved a lot in the Slow Food Youth Network Berlin. We are often invited to give workshops on fermentation, on uh, food waste. We also um, give inputs in school, in educational um, facilities. We are also asked sometimes to take part in, in panels, discussion, also to moderate them. And I think the fact that people ask us to come shows that they are eager to learn and that they are really interested about our ideas about, um, about what we want to, to, to carry out. And um, I like concrete examples, so I will also give, give one of them. Um, what we do um, often here in Berlin, in the, in the Slow Food, um, in the communities, we organize um, farm days. Um, so days in which um, we go outside in Brandenburg, which is the region around Berlin, um, and uh, yeah, visit the farm. Sometimes we also work with the farmers, or we simply um, visit them and, and learn about their work, depending on what they what they can do or what they also want to do. Um, and yeah, the concept is is quite simple. We organize that with the farmers. Um, we publish it online, and we make sure that um, everybody can join if if they want to join. So it's a very open, uh, let's say open open format and um, a bit. Uh, that's also how I started to be active in the Slow Food Use um, Network in, in Berlin. And um, so to conclude the episode, uh, we're here
0: in Berlin at the Schnippel Disco, at the Disco Soup, which is a very big event to prevent food waste, to raise awareness on this important topic, Uh, We collect veggies that would have been thrown away, we make delicious soups and other dishes, and then we serve it. In this case, we're preparing it for the demonstration. We are having a sat that is taking place tomorrow. So my question is, um, do you think an event like this has also an
3: impact and how? Um, Yeah, I definitely do think it has an impact. Um, First of all, I think it's a super fun event to take part in so it's really um it's really it's really an event that creates community that gets people together um to chop veggies and um i don't know about you but otherwise i'm not often invited to chopping parties even though there are many uh, party concepts in berlin as some of you might know um that's something really new and i i mean that's something really amazing and yeah i think fun fun fact or fun fun things aside um Food waste is, um, reducing food waste is one of the main solutions to the challenges that we, that we have had. Uh, probably you've heard it many times tonight, but I will say it again: one third of the food that we produce is uh, lost or wasted. Um, and, um, and yeah, the, the disco soup format I think simply does a very good job at reminding us that this is the case. Um, and not only us, but also politicians who, let's not forget, um, are also uh, able to make laws and uh, and uh, influence uh, those type of um, issues. Yeah. Uh, and it's fun also, super fun.
0: <laughs> Where are we? Where are we now? We are at the
3: Schnippeldesco, the final ending, the final set. The party is happening, the people are amazing, and I'm happy to go to bed soon.
0: Woo! <laughs> ready for tomorrow?
4: Yes, I want to be ready for tomorrow, um, but we still have some work to do. But fortunately, we have so many helping hands, I'm so glad about that. And I probably will get enough sleep for tomorrow, <laughs> so yeah, probably I'm going to be ready.
0: Next up, we have the Wirhabenes sat demonstration, where our disco soup will be served. But first, let's get some context. I've asked Lea Leimann, board member of Slow Food Germany, to give us a quick rundown of what this demonstration is all about. It's a big march taking place
3: since I think 10, 11 years, a long long time. And um, people come over, come, come here from all over. Germany, but also the the other countries, and we're marching together to um, to state that we want to have a change in the food systems. Um, this year, the topic is um, good food for everyone, so also connected to the slogan of slow food, um, where we also say we we need a change because we want to feed everyone with good food. Und deswegen ist es so wichtig, dass wir heute hier stehen und gemeinsam dafür demonstrieren. Und es ist mega cool, dass so viele Leute hier sind.
0: Danke. Thank you for joining us on the Slow Food Youth Network podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. If you found it valuable, please consider sharing it with your friends and followers. And don't forget to follow our podcast for more thought-provoking content. Before we go, I wanted to let you know about an exciting event coming up on April 29th, World Disco Soup Day. On this day, the global movement joins forces to fight food waste and promote sustainable food systems. If you are interested in getting involved, head to our social media channels to learn more. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you next time.